0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 19th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This, mo- this evening, I'm going to present Christian Foundations. This might be a part one. I'm not calling it that, but there might be other topics that I need to discuss here. That really don't fit into the Bible Basics series because they were sort of discussed in Bible Basics in different ways. Bible Basics is, I I try to aim that for neophytes, for beginners. This is for a more um, advanced Christian identity audience, I, I, I would hope. But there's a lot of confusion on this topic that I'm going to speak on tonight, and I hope to clarify at least some of it. Speaking academically, we are not going to move our Christian identity studies forward and distinguish our faith from all of the errors of denominational churchianity until we leave behind all of the mistakes of the past all of the baggage that we've accumulated from the bad doctrines, the the errant doctrines of those denominational churches. As I have said before, there are many supposed identity Christians who are content with the 19th century discoveries of British Israel, and that is where they remain. Some others have moved past that to realize that the Jews are not Judah. But they are still mired down in other heresies, such as the supposed sixth and eighth day creation heresy, or the idea that man can somehow be justified by works, which are the rituals of the law, or the heretical idea that Yahweh created races of men other than Adam, when He created beasts in Genesis chapter 1. These last fools often claim that the other races are the beasts of Genesis chapter 1, but they are to be included among all men in John chapter 12, verse 32, or the world of John 3.16. All of these heresies are evil, and the men who uphold them are scatterers and not gatherers. All of these heresies lead to compromise with the enemies of Yahweh our God, and all of them and more must be left behind if we are to have a truly pure and righteous faith. We have spoken often about some of these heresies, but this evening we will discuss a different sort of heretic, which is the Christian identity Judaizer. Paul of Tarsus resisted the Judaizers in the first century, and we must continue to resist them today. Sadly, many of our Christian identity brethren have fallen for the trap of self-justification, which they have set. There seems to be a lot of confusion in Christianity and especially among identity Christians, as to the relationship of the new covenant to the old covenant. So, many identity Christians, realizing the truth of the Hebrew roots of white Christian society and the Israelite ancestry of the majority of tribes which had formed the modern nations of Europe, think that they must revert to keeping the many statutes and ordinances of the Old Covenant in order to better please Yahweh their God. So we have friends that won't shave any part of their beards. As we read in Leviticus chapter 19, ye shall not round the corners of your heads. This proves that Ancient Israelites were blockheads. Neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Then, of course, there is often much arguing among brethren as to what it means to round the corners of your heads or mar the corners of thy beard. And the men seek to justify themselves in the belief that they have a proper explanation. Quite often, They have no true explanation at all, but only conjecture. Therefore, we must ask, is that what pleases God? Or is it just a self-righteous attempt to justify oneself? Some of our friends will choose out particular laws, ostensibly only those which they think that they can or should keep. And then they willfully ignore others. We have one friend, and it's this particular friend that was actually the spark which urged me to produce this podcast, even though I'm about six months late. We have one friend that claimed to keep all of these laws. But when we saw pictures of him in social media, we had never seen fringes with blue ribbons on his garments. But the same law that states, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard, also instructed Moses in Numbers chapter 25 to speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put the fringe of the borders, put upon the fringe of the borders, a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of Yahweh and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all of my commandments and be holy unto your God. So if you refuse to trim the edges of your beard, but on the other hand, you are not wearing these blue ribbons as fringes on your garments. How are you keeping the law? Then if you decide to wear blue fringes, what about where it says in Exodus chapter 35 in verse three, that ye shall kindle No fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. Therefore, if you have a gas stove with a pilot light, or even any type of light bulb or lantern, you have a fire kindled in your home. The same is true of any type of furnace or hot water heater. So, in the middle of winter, you better turn it all off before the start of the Sabbath then perhaps one electrical appliance which remains on can technically be construed as a kindled fire, no matter how small the electrical current is within its circuits. So you had better unplug everything and remove all of your batteries from all of your toys. Put your cell phone in storage on the Sabbath outside of your home because the screen lights up and the batteries are often not removable. Now, is it evident how hard it may be in today's modern society to live up to all of the precepts of the law? And as Paul had said in Galatians, if you are circumcised, you had better do all of these other things and more. Although we understand that a little differently. In the King James Version, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. But in our Christigenia New Testament translation, we read the verb in that passage more precisely Of a man who gets himself circumcised. Thinking that by his circumcision. He would be justified. And that is what the Judaizers were teaching in Paul's day. So if you get yourself circumcised. On account of the law. Or on account of the covenants. You better never have a fire in your home on the Sabbath day. For the same reason, and you better wear blue fringes on your garments, for the same reason, the Apostle James wrote in chapter two of his epistle, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I'm quoting strictly from the King James Version this evening so that nobody could say that I'm Twisting scriptures with my own peculiar translation, even though I know that's not true. Attempting to demonstrate one's righteousness by claiming to keep the law and not keeping the whole law, one is a hypocrite. And according to James, one is guilty of all. One is guilty of violating all of the law. For that same reason, Paul of Tarsus wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. And of course I translate that for the remission of forthcoming sins. God Planning this in advance right from the beginning, because Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But that's beside the point. I just couldn't let that very poor translation go by without making a comment. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds or the works of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only or the Judeans only? Is he not also of the Gentiles or the nations? Yes, of the nations also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. So you don't need to be circumcised to be justified. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yeah, we establish the law. We establish the law. But there is no longer a need to keep the rituals as Christ is our righteousness. There is some confusion when comparing Paul and James. If one is not familiar with the various expressions of the two men. In our commentary on Galatians chapter 2, which we gave here four years ago this month, We demonstrated that in Paul's writing, the phrase works of the law, or sometimes, as it is in the King James Version, deeds of the law, are the rituals and other ceremonial ordinances of the old covenant law, such as those governing one's appearance and certain aspects of behavior apart from morality. This is how the same phrase was used in the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were contemporary to Paul's time. So where Paul says works of the law or deeds of the law, he's referring to the rituals and the ceremonial ordinances. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul explained that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law which are the rituals and other things which the law compels a man to perform. Man cannot be justified by these things, so he can only hope to be justified by God. And as the scripture says in the Psalms, since no living flesh can be justified in his sight, then no ritual or work of the law will ever justify a man. James also said, as we have just cited, that a man who would keep the whole law had better not fail in any point or he is a complete failure. But in that same place, he also explains that a man can be justified by works, which are the actions of his life rather than the works of the law. Paul did not mention those sort of works in Galatians chapter 2, but in many other places in his epistles, he did express the need for a man to perform good works contrary to the works of the law. This is the difference between Galatians chapter two and James chapter two, and there is no conflict between them as Paul had called for men to perform good works, but not the works of the law. For example, Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace are you saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So it's not what you believe. (laughs) That's not the faith that Paul's talking about. It's not something that you do. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of the works of the law. Not of any getting yourself circumcised, shaving your beard, wearing ribbons, Um, putting out all the fires in your house on the Sabbath. No, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. If a man could affect his own salvation by rituals such as circumcision or baptism and by the wearing of blue ribbons and never trimming his beard, He would be able to boast that he saved himself. And in essence, he would be denying Yahshua Christ. That is the opinion of the Jews. That's what they do. That is why we must call such a man a Judaizer. They're following the mode of thought of the Jews, that they didn't need Jesus. They hated Jesus they could save themselves by keeping the law, which they never kept. And Paul said that those who would have you to be circumcised never kept the law themselves. When Christ was asked by a certain young man, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The response in relation to that question was, If thou will enter into life, keep the commandments. Then the man responded by asking him which commandments. Christ didn't say a damn thing about circumcision or purple or blue ribbons. Christ answered, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And of course, this is references. Most of these are a reference to the Ten Commandments. And then thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is something apart from the Ten Commandments, which is found, I believe, in Leviticus chapter 19, perhaps. Now, this keeping of the commandments is sufficient if one loves Christ. As he said in John chapter 15, that if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. But to that, Christ added a new commandment, as he also said in Matthew, which was the Christians love one another. So here in Matthew, we read a little further. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And these were the sort of works which James had described by which a man could be found to be righteous. And therefore, Paul also had wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. These are the only things a Christian needs to do to be justified and then to be perfected. But the Judaizers had boasted in keeping the rituals and works of the law. And they sought to bind Christians from among both Judeans and Greeks to do the same. Addressing them, Paul had explained that Yahweh justified all of Israel through the faith, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and not through the works of the law. So we must ask, and this is the crucial question here, we must ask, What is the foundation of Christianity? What is the basis for the new covenant? The greater context of his epistle to the Romans, and especially chapters one through four, shows that Paul was indeed speaking to an audience comprised entirely of Israelites, either the circumcised Israelites of Judea or the uncircumcised Israelites of the nations, of the ancient dispersions. Then, an examination of Romans chapter 4 says that by faith, Paul referred to the faith of Abraham, to what Abraham had believed, and not to what men believed. So he wrote, and I'll quote from Romans chapter 4 verse 6, After a long drink of water. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputes righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Then Paul asks a rhetorical question. Cometh this blessedness... Then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps that, of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had Being yet uncircumcised, in other words, circumcision, has nothing to do with the belief of Abraham and the fulfillment of the promises. Nothing at all. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, meaning his physical descendants, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, meaning only those who were keeping the law in Judea, which included both Israelites and Edomites, for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect because it isn't consistent with the promises that God gave to Abraham. Because the law works wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace or favor. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to all people of all nations. Nobody's becoming Abraham's seed here. This is only for Abraham's seed, and a lot of them, the majority of them, were not circumcised because they were the Israelites of the captivities and the early migrations and they dropped circumcision. The children of Israel leaving Egypt, if you go back and read the Exodus account, they were not circumcised. They were not being circumcised in Egypt. They dropped it. Moses circumcised them all at Sinai and then They weren't circumcised again until the 40 years of wandering in the desert. And after Joshua brought them into the land of Canaan, Joshua was told to circumcise them all again because the people born in the desert were not circumcised. So anyone of Israel who departed from Egypt, those Trojans and those... Dan and Greeks that departed from Egypt and didn't go with Moses but left by sea they would not have been circumcised because it's very clear in the Exodus accounts that the Israelites were not being circumcised in Egypt in spite of what Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and we're going to see the truth of that momentarily or at least throughout this program. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end. The promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to that which is of the law, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul said that the promise is sure to all those who are of the faith of Abraham. To understand that, you have to know What Abraham believed. And as I love to say, Abraham did not believe in niggers. Abraham did not believe in chinks. Abraham did not believe in Latin American squat monsters or American prairie niggers. Abraham believed what Yahweh told him. That his seed, his offspring were going to inherit the world. That's the world of John 3.16 but to that also, which is of the faith of Abraham, which is of what Abraham believed, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickens the dead and who called things which be not as though they were. In other words, Yahweh God in his word spoke of those many nations as if they were a reality before they came into existence because they were to come from Abraham's descendants who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations and this proves the Catholic Church to be wrong on all points very simply. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. The Catholic Church, the denominational churches teach that strangers will become Abraham's seed. That's a lie. Or that Christ is Abraham's only seed. That's a lie. It's Abraham's seed that would have become many nations, and they have the promise. That's what Paul's explaining here. And the promise is sure to them, whether they're of the law or whether they're of the scattered Israelites who never kept the law, who were never circumcised. Because Abraham believed Yahweh, Yahweh promised to justify Abraham's seed. If one is of that seed, as the promises were passed on through Jacob, then one is justified in Christ. Later, in Romans chapter 7, Paul explained that Christ had to die to free the wife, the bride of Yahweh, from the penalties of the law by which she was liable to death. Here it should be evident that to Paul of Tarsus, the foundation of the new covenant in Christ is the promises to Abraham and not the old covenant, which was made 430 years after the call of Abraham, as Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3, where he had written, speaking not of the Sinai covenant, but of the covenant with Abraham. And that's important to understand. There are different covenants in the Old Testament. And this I say, that the covenant, that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect. The law was attached to the Sinai covenant 430 years after Yahweh's first covenant with Abraham, which we're going to get to momentarily. So the law and the Sinai covenant which came 430 years after the first covenant with Abraham, does not disannul the first covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham is the basis for Christianity, not the old covenant, which is the covenant at Sinai, where the law was given. Thus we read in Romans chapter 15. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truths of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles or nations might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles or nations and sing unto thy name. But who were the Gentiles to whom Paul referred here? The word means nations. Notice that the King James Version did not translate the same word as Gentiles in Romans 4.17, which by itself should betray the dishonest use of the term. Paul had already explained in Romans chapter 4 that the nations of the promises were those nations which had come from the seed of Abraham. So here we cannot Imagine that he refers to any other nations but those. In fact, in the very next verse of that passage in Romans, he cites Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. So we will cite more of that passage here than Paul had in his epistle and assert that Paul certainly did not take it out of context. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, Now, that width is added in the King James Version. It's not in the Hebrew. It should say, rejoice, O ye nations, his people, because those nations are his people, and his people, those 12 tribes of Israel, are those nations. Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Those nations of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, are the 12 tribes of Israel, which were prophesied to become many nations, and they did. So, what did Paul say in Romans? That Yahweh spoke of things not yet existing as if they were existing? Well, this is an example of that. Our assertion that promises to Abraham and the fulfillment of that promise through the 12 tribes of Israel are the basis for Christianity is supported in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. There, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is recorded as having prophesied the purpose of his newly born son in relation to the Messiah and the salvation of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Right there. That verse should be cross-referenced to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, which holy covenant? Is that a reference to the Sinai covenant? No, it's not. Because the next line defines that covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And we're going to see that that was the covenant of Genesis chapter 15. And Genesis chapter 17. Yahweh having made a couple of covenants with Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And now child shall be called the prophet Of the highest. Because he was going to announce. The coming of the Christ. For. Unto his people. I'm sorry. For thou shalt. Go before. The face of the Lord. To prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation. Unto his people. By the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the day spring from on high. Has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, the children of Israel, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And here it must be evident that the enemies of ancient Israel in Luke chapter one or in Deuteronomy 32, 43, are still the enemies of the Israel of Christ today in Luke chapter one. And that the new covenant is based on the promises to the fathers, starting with Abraham and not on the Sinai covenant, not on what we call the old covenant. Paul himself upheld this concept once again in Hebrews chapter six. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, Paul saying, there should be no question here. We're in God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise. Heirs, plural. Jesus is not the heir to the promise. The heirs are plural. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. With this we should know, there is no turning back to the Old Covenant, which is the Sinai Covenant. Christianity is not based on the Sinai Covenant. It's based on, according to Paul in Hebrews, according to Paul in Romans, according to Luke and Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter one, the New Covenant is based on the, the initial promises to Abraham and the covenants God made with Abraham. The old covenant was hopelessly broken 2,500 years ago. Yahweh himself announced this in Zechariah chapter 11. And when I say old covenant, I'm referring to what we call the Sinai covenant, the giving of the law, and the creation of the kingdom period. Yahweh himself announced the breaking of the Old Covenant in Zechariah chapter 11. There, he referred to the children of Israel as the flock of slaughter because they were under the penalty of death for the fornications and idolatries, which caused him to send them into captivity in the first place. Once again, in Romans chapter seven, Paul had explained, how that penalty of death was lifted, as that is why Christ had to die for our sins. So, speaking of the ongoing punishment of Israel and Judah, the word of Yahweh said in Zechariah, then I said, speaking to the flock of the slaughter, then I said, I will not feed you. That that dies, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. Pretty cruel punishment. Pretty heinous crimes. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder. That I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. The only covenant Yahweh made with all the people was the Sinai covenant. And it was broken in that day so that the porter flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of Yahweh and I said unto them if you think good give me my price and if not forbear so they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver this is how they get back into his favor this is a reference To the 30 pieces of silver. Which were used to bribe Judas Iscariot. To betray the Christ. And Yahweh said unto me. Cast it unto the potter. A goodly price. That I was priced at by them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver. And cast them to the potter. In the house of Yahweh. Then I cut asunder my other staff even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, that brotherhood was going to be restored as it's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 37. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, we see that Israel and Judah would once again be made one stick. And that also is in Christ Because at the end of Ezekiel chapter 37, after it says that Israel and Judah will be made one stick, there's a promise of a new covenant. If Yahweh himself announced that he had broken the covenant by which he could only be referring to the old or Levitical covenant made at Mount Sinai, then how can any man pretend to return to it? What man can make a covenant with God and expect him to be bound thereby? That is the uttermost foolishness, and the concept must be purged from Christian identity because it's Jewish. But one must ask, can the old covenant be broken? And if so, then on what terms? Many identity Christians are quick to point out that the terms of many of the old covenant laws are forever, as we see in many laws that it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. But what those identity Christians are missing are the original conditions of the entire covenant and the giving of the law, which is set forth at the beginning in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if, if, that's a big word, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, Zechariah 11, the covenant he made with all the people. The entire old covenant was contingent upon whether the children of Israel would be obedient. They failed to be obedient. And after 700 years of patience, Yahweh began to cast them out into the captivities. Then after 900 years, as the time of Zechariah was about 520 BC, Yahweh finally announced that he broke the covenant that they had been transgressing and had broken for centuries. So at that point, forever was not forever anymore because they didn't live up to that if if you will obey my voice. The Sinai Covenant and the Levitical law in the kingdom period was the way that Yahweh chose to preserve the seed of Abraham in fulfillment of the promises in ancient times. And the Christian New Covenant is another way by which Yahweh chose to preserve the seed of Abraham in fulfillment of the promises in modern times. Both of these dispensations were planned from the foundation of the world as Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So long before the children of Israel were told in Zechariah that the old covenant was broken, Yahweh made the announcement that there would be a new covenant, for example, in both Ezekiel chapter 37 and in Jeremiah chapter 31. Therefore, the passing of the old covenant is obvious in the promises of a new covenant that long preceded the rather explicit announcement of the breaking of the old covenant in Zechariah by Yahweh God himself. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we see the principle and explicit promise of a new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. So here Yahweh acknowledges that the children of Israel broke the Sinai covenant, but he doesn't announce that he broke it for another perhaps 80 to 100 years. Jeremiah might be writing here somewhere between Because the books of Jeremiah are out of order. And that could be proven. Somewhere between 600 and 580 BC. And the announcement in Zechariah is somewhere around 520 BC. Maybe 515 BC. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. For they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and will remember their sin no more, being Yahshua Christ. And with this, we must ask, What law is written in our hearts not to steal or murder or fornicate or commit adultery or cheat our brethren? Or is it written on our hearts to sew blue ribbons under the fringes of our garments, cut off our foreskins, and let our beards grow wild? The new covenant is not according to the old covenant which the children of Israel had broken. And therefore, we are no longer under the many ordinances or statutes of the Old Covenant, which either necessitated the intervention of a Levitical priest or governed the national conduct of the people, for example, how they dressed and how they conducted their civic duties." Ancient societies did indeed regulate how their citizens dressed, a phenomenon which is as recent as the Roman Empire. In Rome, every citizen of Rome could only wear a white toga. It had to be a white toga. It couldn't be a green or a blue or an orange toga. Niggers would have hated Rome. Priests could wear purple borders on their togas. Only a king could wear a purple toga or a purple garment. If a man came out onto the streets of Rome in a blue or a green toga, the citizens of Rome probably would have stoned him or crucified him because that man would have been seen as elevating himself above the other citizens, which is why all Roman citizens always wore just white togas. They were acknowledging that they weren't any different than their fellow citizens. Democracy at its finest, I guess. The new covenant is according to the laws written on our hearts, and not in the pages of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We have moral laws written on our hearts, reflected in the basic Ten Commandments, and not in the many legalisms and odd interpretations which result from looking at these ancient ordinances through the the perspective of our own modern society. In other words... We can't even properly understand half of that. We can't. That those passages about rounding the corners of the, of your hair or making um, fringes on the borders of your garments, and and then putting a blue ribbon on it, and then it says that the blue ribbon is put there as the fringe. We we don't even understand how to do that. Never mind, try to mimic it, but. If we think we have to be circumcised, and if we think we have to do these other things in the law, we better figure out those blue fringes, or we, according to the Apostle James, are responsible for violating the entire law. In other words, it don't matter if you keep 99% of the law. If you screw up 1%, you're dooming yourself because you're trying to keep that law for your righteousness and you're denying the sacrifice which Christ made for you from which you should derive your righteousness or seek your righteousness. Far too many people in Christian identity seek to establish their own righteousness by attempting to follow the rituals and ordinances of the old covenant. Things which their own fathers found impossible to do. When Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, certain Judaizers came from Jerusalem and started to tell the Christians of Antioch that they had to be circumcised and keep the other provisions of the Mosaic Law if they were to be justified. And Paul and Barnabas resisted them, and a debate ensued. So it was all brought to the elder apostles, to James and Peter and John in Jerusalem for remediation. Upon this, we read in Acts chapter 15. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the Acts chapter 10 experience at the household of Cornelius. And that also proves that the Ethiopian eunuch was really a Judean. He was really a circumcised Judean going to the temple for the feast. And God, who knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, Acts chapter 10, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles or nations by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, the Hebrew form of Simon, for Simon Peter, Simeon had declared how God did at first visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Speaking of the nations, the nations descended from Abraham's seed what God had cleansed. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this will I return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men, those who remain, might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who does all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is, James's decision is, that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and, and this is important, from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas named Barsabbas and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles or the nations in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, scattered Israelites. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So we see right there in the words of James, Acts chapter 15, that a man does not have to be circumcised. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that had hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well. And that's the end of James's decision. And of course, in the gospel, Christ already requires of his disciples to keep his commandments as he defined them. Do not steal, do not cheat, do not commit adultery, do not um, disrespect your parents, all of those things are in the gospel, so we take for granted that the apostles had those things in mind, but did not have to repeat them. Yet the apostles advised nothing about a need for circumcision. They denied a need for circumcision. They announced nothing about a need for baptism or haircuts or beard trimmings or blue ribbons. What they did advise is that Christians keep the commandments because that's in the gospel. And they added three things to that to abstain from idolatry, from blood, from idolatry, from blood and things strangled and from fornication. I interpret that as a maintenance of the food laws since it is unlikely that they ever considered any unclean beasts to be food. Unclean beasts were not food, and that race mixing or fornication, as well as other forms which fit the use of the term such as prostitution or sodomy, other forms of sex, were also forbidden. It is likely that they added these things only to clarify certain things to the Greeks that the Judeans had already understood. This is the predicament of the children of Israel. They never kept their end of the old covenant, the covenant which was made at Sinai, which was a contract. So the other party to the contract, Yahweh, sent them out of his domain in punishment, and he had a judgment against them. The penalty for the judgment is death. Imagine entering into a contract with someone, and receiving a reward, a certain amount of money, in anticipation of your pledge to fulfill a certain list of provisions. Imagine that you never fulfilled those provisions. So, the individual who made the contract with you sues you and obtains a judgment against you for the sum which you had been paid. Then long after you are sued and the judgment was handed down, you imagine in your heart that perhaps you could go back and fulfill a few of the provisions of the contract, which is already long broken and for which you are liable to repay your debt. But Yahshua Christ had died so that you would never have to repay that debt. So why should you go back an attempt to fulfill any of the provisions. To do so is to basically deny the fact that Christ already paid the debt for you. So you better keep the whole law perfectly, as both James and Paul had explained. Because denying Christ, you certainly won't have any relief or propitiation from him. On the other hand, no flesh was ever justified by the works of the law. So you just cost yourself any chance of reconciliation. That is the plight of all Jews who falsely claim to be Israel and pretend to keep the law, but have all condemned themselves. That is why those who profess that we must keep certain aspects of the law are Judaizers, even if they are not Jews, they're still Judaizers. As Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, Yahweh himself chose to die to free Israel from the law. And there was a greater compulsion for Yahweh to do that than merely having mercy on Israel. That greater compulsion, that greater compulsion was the earlier covenant which he made with Abraham. It is in regards to that earlier covenant with Abraham that Paul wrote in Hebrews, for when God made promise to Abraham, Hebrews chapter six, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, this is indisputable. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, Confirmed it by an oath. To see what it was to which Paul was referring, we must begin with Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. A passage we spoke about at length just a few weeks ago here at Christogene. Then on to Genesis chapter 15, where we see the covenant to which Paul had referred in Hebrews chapter 6. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, One born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bow shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness. Romans chapter four. And he said unto him, I am Yahweh that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, now what follows is the ancient manner in which covenants were made which is evident in many ancient Mesopotamian and even Hittite inscriptions. And he said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. But the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, an aura of great darkness fell upon him. And Yahweh passed through the divided animals. And we know, even though it doesn't say it explicitly here, we know that that was how covenants were made in the ancient world, in the world of Abraham's time. This is the faith of Abraham to which Paul also referred in Romans chapter four, where it reads, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be, and he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him for righteousness. But these promises, having been passed down to Jacob, if all of Israel were slain on account of the penalties which they were liable to under the law given at Sinai, then Yahweh would have lied to Abraham here, especially since, in later history, All of Abraham's other sons were race-mixed bastards. That is why Paul said in Hebrews chapter 6 that Yahweh could not lie here as it was an oath which he swore upon himself when he passed through the divided portions of the animals. That is also why Paul wrote in Galatians that the oath which Yahweh swore to Abraham was not made void by the law which came 430 years later at Sinai. The Sinai covenant was forever based on conditions which Israel failed to fulfill, so it was irreparably broken. This Abrahamic covenant has no conditions. Nothing was required of Abraham, and therefore it will never be broken. The basis of Christianity Is in this Abrahamic covenant. Not. In the. Levitical. Or Sinai covenant. This covenant was added to later. Where Yahweh made another covenant with Abraham. And that covenant had a condition. But it is an addition to this covenant. And it cannot break. This covenant which was already made. So. In Genesis chapter 17, we read, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my, co- my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee. I don't know why they didn't call it all Gentiles here, because it's the same word. And kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Then, as it continues, we see the condition of circumcision is added. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You can't get circumcised at 40 and claim to be keeping this law or this covenant. Because if you're circumcised at 40, well, You were a man-child for a long time, not circumcised. So when do you think you were cut off, according to this covenant? Then Yahweh made an additional promise to Sarah, which is the promise which Paul explained in Romans chapter 9, had produced the children of the promise. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yeah, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. The promise to Sarah was over and above the promise to Abraham and had no conditions. The promise to Abraham and the covenant here in Genesis 17 had the condition of circumcision attached to it, but the earlier covenant of Genesis chapter 15 did not. So Yahweh would keep his promise to Abraham's seed, even if they broke the covenant of circumcision, which was later incorporated into the Levitical law at Sinai. This condition of circumcision was explicit. A male child not circumcised on the eighth day would be cut off from his people. So there is not much use being circumcised after the eighth day, and especially many years after, as one's parents have already sinned. But in reality, long ago, all of Israel were cut off from being his people and taken away in large portions over nearly two centuries in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. The children of Israel never properly kept the laws which they had promised to keep in exchange for being the special people of Yahweh, and having his beneficence and protection. This we see, for example, in Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. He was cut off. Of course, Ephraim, being used to name the Israelites of the northern kingdom, they did not die physically and they went off into the Assyrian captivity. But they were worthy of death, and they were as good as dead in the eyes of their God. So it was said as part of their punishment in Hosea chapter 1, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. And then in chapter 3, but the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. This last verse indicates that they would be deprived of all of their special religious status and accoutrements. And they also discontinued the practice of circumcision. But with these punishments and admonitions, there was also a message of hope and reconciliation. Again in Hosea chapter one, and the language of this message is found to agree with the unconditional covenant which Yahweh made with Abraham. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. And in Hosea chapter three, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. And again, where Ephraim had been declared dead in Hosea chapter 13, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou said, give me a king and princes. And I gave thee a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath because Yahweh would be our king. Christ would be our king. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. So the children of Israel were cut off from being the people of God, the punishment for the not keeping the circumcision. And one of the things they had done to merit being cut off was to turn to idolatry and cease from being circumcised. Therefore, the punishment for not being circumcised was executed in those same captivities prophesied in Hosea where it says that they were not my people, that they were cut off from God. But the reconciliation is in Christ. And Christ did not demand that the practice of circumcision be instituted anew. Rather, it is prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that the children of Israel would be scattered abroad as a punishment. And that was the cutting off which happened in the deportations. And there it is also written that they would ultimately be reconciled and that once they were reconciled, Yahweh would circumcise their hearts, not their foreskins. So we read, and it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whether Yahweh thy God has driven thee. This is a prophecy of the deportations of the captivities of Israel and the scatterings of Israel all all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And shall return unto Yahweh thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thine soul, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of the heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou hast made live. And Yahweh thy God will put all these curses upon mine enemies and upon them that hate thee which persecuted thee now we've come now we've come full circle so yahweh would spare israel on account of the promises to the fathers and we come full circle once again to the basis of christianity as it was described in the words of zechariah in the gospel of luke to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, which is the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, not to Moses, to Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, Deuteronomy chapter 30, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And it's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We also see that in the prophesied reconciliation that circumcision is of the heart and not of the foreskin in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we read in Colossians, Colossians chapter two, Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain B.C., after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands the circumcision made without hands. I can't stress that enough. That's that Deuteronomy chapter 30, circumcision of the heart. In putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of the heart, that circumcision made without hands is the promise of Yahweh to reconcile himself to his people. And to circumcise their hearts, which we have just seen in Deuteronomy chapter 30. For that same reason, Paul had written in Romans chapter 2, for he is not a, and I'll change a couple of words here to be more accurate, for he is not a Judean, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Judean, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul was not denying the law. He was teaching the law, as it is in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Yahweh God understood when he gave the law at Sinai on the condition that if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, that the people would not obey and that they would eventually be cast out and driven off in punishment. The most explicit proof of that is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which we have just cited. Other proofs are throughout the law, such as in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, where Yahweh had foreseen the sin that the children of Israel would commit in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 400 years before it happened, where they demanded an earthly king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, speak about the time when the children of Israel would want one of their own as king. And that was 400 years before it happened in First Samuel chapter 8. So while the, while the original commandment of circumcision was forever, the Sinai covenant was forever, if you will obey my voice. And forever ended for both when the children of Israel suffered the consequence of disobedience in Christ, in their reconciliation, circumcision is of the heart. Now in Christ, God approves of the circumcision of the heart, and it is the circumcision of the heart, which was prophesied to be the circumcision upon the reconciliation of his people, Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Of course, Deuteronomy is the law. And if anyone professes to keep the law, then they must recognize that law. Our fathers had already suffered the penalty of being cut off from their people as they also discontinued circumcision. We cannot justify ourselves now by returning and taking upon ourselves the conditions of the Genesis chapter 17 covenant or the Sinai covenant and the law of circumcision and circumcising ourselves after so many generations of our ancestors are already punished for departing from the law and after Christ has already offered himself as their propitiation. The debt's already paid. Why are you cutting off your foreskin? That's crazy. You can't make it better. You can't make it better than Christ. So therefore, now, we can only be justified in Christ. And to do that, we must repent of our sins and return to him on his terms and not on our own terms. Okay, Jesus, I believe you but I think I got to add to this shit and I got to circumcise myself too. That's nuts. That's crazy. What are you trying to do to yourself? You're trying to make yourself better than your brethren? you trying to tell Jesus that, okay, I'm going to accept what you did to me, but it's not quite good enough. So I'm going to do a little something for myself instead, right? Get out of here. That's crazy. <laughs> what are you, an idiot? <laughs> you got to be an idiot to believe you could do that. Christ does not require circumcision of the flesh. And that is clear in the mandates of the apostles handed down in Acts chapter 15 and in their epistles. So there is no compulsion for a Christian to be circumcised. There is also no compulsion for a Christian to do any of the hundreds of other ordinances in the law. Doing them may not condemn any of us, but it will certainly not justify any of us. We have justification free from the rituals and ordinances of the law. And for that reason, the apostles, Peter, Paul, and Jude, all, all wrote of the liberty which we have in Christ. And that liberty is reflected in the epistles as well as in the book of Acts. So Paul encouraged the Galatians in chapter five of his epistle to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. The liberty from being circumcised, the liberty from how you want to shave your beard, the liberty from what kind of clothing you want to wear because you don't have to put fringes all over it with blue ribbons, look like some kind of, hippie Jew circus freak. That's what you would look like. You may as well grow those stupid long braids on, on, on your sideburns. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He was referring to the yoke of bondage of the Old Testament ordinances, which is how the apostle Peter had referred to the circumcision and other ordinances in Acts chapter 15, where he said, now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither us nor our fathers were able to bear? So later. In chapter 2 of his first epistle, Peter warned his readers to conduct themselves as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. In other words, the favor of Christ doesn't permit you to go commit sin, but as the servants of God. Then, after warning that those who would endeavor to keep the law are guilty of the whole, if they fail in one point, James said in chapter two of his epistle, for he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So you speak, and so you do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. So, the law of liberty is to keep the moral precepts of the commandments without having to follow the many ordinances by which the ancient Israelites were justified under the law, while also being granted mercy if one is merciful, which is an instruction in the parables of Christ. Identity Christians should be whole Bible Christians, and that is the original meaning and application of the words orthodox and Catholic. We cannot deny our liberty by teaching our brethren that they must keep Levitical ordinances and ritual laws We cannot accept our liberty by teaching our brethren that they have to keep those things. We're not accepting our liberty. We're not accepting the price that Christ paid to free us from the judgments of the law. And yes, circumcision and regulated haircuts And blue fringes are rituals. A ritual is some act that one does for the purpose of appeasement, propitiation, or conciliation, to be reckoned righteous or to be justified by a God. Our historical learning from the Old Covenant is that we cannot justify ourselves by such acts, especially when we break the commandments and fail to love our brethren. As the Apostle John had explained, and as Christ had explained in his gospel, true love of God is to keep the commandments and love one's brother. The things were written aforetime were written for our learning, as Paul also informs us in Romans chapter 15. The moral laws of the old covenant stand as an example by which we should interpret the commandments of Christ to this very day, but there is no Christian requirement to keep the ordinances that pertained to a maintenance, to the maintenance of a worldly kingdom which no longer exists. We do not have to keep any law that was dependent upon the Levitical priests. Christ is our priest, and he is not of the order of Levi, As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 7, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. The Levitical laws were designed for a certain time and place, a certain historical period. Therefore, many of the laws of the Sinai covenant were peculiar to the maintenance of the kingdom which the covenant took steps to establish. There was a cultural context and a purpose to them That is forever lost now or even by the time of Christ. So Paul had also explained that the Levitical covenant was fading and gone, vanishing away. This is found in Hebrews chapter 8. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Yet to this day, men attempt to cling to certain of the Levitical laws, presumably in order to appear holy. Oh, it's going to make me holy. No, it's not. It's going to make you stupid. Ostensibly, men who seek to appear holy outwardly seek the approval of men or to vaunt themselves over their brethren. Appearing to be holy had failed our race 2,500 years ago, as our ancestors did not act holy. That is part of the overarching lesson of the Old Testament, that a man can never justify himself through works. But the New Testament tells us that if Christ has justified us, then we need not justify ourselves as there is no other way to be considered just in the eyes of God. No way at all. The only way for us to be considered just in the eyes of God is through accepting the blood of Christ and repenting of our sin. Rituals and ordinances have no place in Christian identity. But the Christian must keep the commandments, the moral laws of God. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. And I don't think I'm going to be able to play any music this evening. So I'm just going to close this up and cut back to the pre-recorded programming that plays 24-7 on my streams. I know that is getting kind of stale, and it's almost time for me to change it. Hopefully, I'll get the time to do that soon. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all Jews, niggers, squat monsters, Chinamen, whatever.